The following is a powerful and necessary conversation, but includes descriptions of racial terror and racial violence. Listeners, be advised. Take care of yourself and be well. Welcome to Forward Together, a podcast from the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, where we shine a light on the people and ideas that drive the movement to end the evils of systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, and false moral narratives of religious nationalism. In episode 10, longtime Arkansas Poor People's Campaign committee member and Little Rock, Arkansas native Mary Givens explains the generational trauma and the relationship with her dad that sets her activism on fire. Givens' 20-year career in literacy activism right here in central Arkansas, her parents' wisdom, and Mary Turner, a woman who was barely 20 years old and eight months pregnant when she met with the Georgia mob in 1918, unfold in this episode as Mary lays out the casual relationship between generational racist violence and the structural oppression that protects it as poverty and illiteracy go unchecked in black communities crying out for healing and repair. Listen in as Mary breaks down the different kinds of racists and likens them to the various COVID strains that have infected communities, some more harmful than others, but each dangerous and potentially deadly. Our podcast ends on a high note with a nod to the work that activist groups have done and continue to do despite setbacks like murdering Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Arkansas's newest stand, Your Ground Laws. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Nate. It's a pleasure to uh, be on this podcast with you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm glad to have you on. And as we start with every guest, uh, I, I would like for you, as much as you're willing to share, and as far as back as you'd like to go, kind of just let us know who you are, where you come from, and what kind of informs your yourself from your childhood that kind of has kind of led you to uh, who you are today. Uh, we would love to hear from you about that. I was born and raised here in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, East Little Rock, East End. We used to call it the East End, and now they've changed the name, and the East End is somewhere else. But I was uh, born and raised in the original uh, East End, East Side of Little Rock. And uh, my both my parents were uh, sharecroppers. I don't I think my dad, I think he may have had a third grade education. My mom, I think she had a sixth grade education, but they were very smart, very wise. So what I really want to talk about 
is my dad. That's who, who I really want to focus on more than myself because I was looking through some papers a couple of months ago and I was going to do a thesis on Mary Turner. So some years ago, some years ago. So I was looking through some papers and I ran across the uh, rough draft of the paper that I was going to write. And I started reading it and it's all started coming alive to me. And I thought about my dad. And I'm just going to read you. Are you familiar with uh, Mary, who Mary Turner is? I'm unfamiliar with her, but uh, okay. yeah, please, please well, share. All right. Well, Mary Turner was a young African-American who was lynched in 1918, and I'm going by the notes that I wrote to myself. Wow. She was uh, born in Lowndes County, Georgia, and of course, her parents were sharecroppers. They moved to Brooks County, Georgia, where they worked on a plantation that was owned by Hampton Smith, a man named Hampton Smith. And he was known for abusing and beating his, his, his workers. And then he would even bail out, uh, bail some uh, African-Americans out of jail and have them work off their debt in, in his field. So Mary yeah. Turner was once severely beaten by him. And when her husband threatened to, you know, when her husband threatened him, the local authorities, which then I associated the local authorities then with the, as the police of today. They sentenced him, his name was Hazel Turner. They sentenced him to time on the chain gang. Now, let's go back and talk about her a little bit. Yeah. My dad was born in 1894. Wow. And she was born in 1899. So. Wow. My dad was five years old when she was born, and he was 20 years old when she was lynched. My mom was wow. born in 1914, and so she was four years old when it happened. So I thought about that. This is kind of in my lifetime. Yeah. So my dad was born on a plantation in Gould, Arkansas. And if he was born in 1894, you can imagine what his life was like. He never talked about his childhood. And if I could just have one day with him today, I would want to know everything about his childhood. He was a quiet man, but of course, growing up in that area, era and being, uh, you know, born on a plantation, plantation, you can imagine the hell that he went through. Yeah. And so he was, but when he would, so he self-medicated, as most people do, with alcohol. And when he drank, he was a very angry man. He, he was a very angry man. And we would always wonder, why was he so angry when he was drinking? But he was, you know, very quiet and just a sweet person when he wasn't. Well, I thought about it, and I thought to myself, if I was, if I was born on a plantation in Gould, Arkansas, Grady, I'd probably be pissed off too, you know, because we don't know what happened. Right. Right. So when I dug this, when I dug these notes out, I got to thinking about they were, she was, you know, she was on this earth the same time he was. And if they did this atrocity to her, I can't imagine what he went through. 
So I'm going to finish telling you her story. Yeah, go for it. So on the evening of May 16, 1918, Hampton Smith was shot and killed by one of his workers. And the following week, Brooks County saw a mob-driven manhunt, which resulted in the lynching of 13 people, including some were, who were in the local jail. So they, they killed people who were locked up for his murder, and these people were in jail. So at 19 and eight months pregnant, she was 19 and eight months pregnant, she publicly denied that her husband had anything to do with the murder of uh, Hampton Smith because he had been arrested with the others on the farm and it enraged them and the mob turned on her and they were going to teach her a lesson. So when she found out that they, you know, were looking for her, she ran but was caught the next day. So on May 19th, these terrorists, it was several hundred people, they drug her to Folsom Bridge. Now she was in in Georgia. This was in Georgia. They drug her to this bridge over the river, and I picture this like Little Rock and North Little Rock. Yeah. And uh, they tied her ankles, strung her upside down, doused her clothes in gasoline, and set her on fire. Now, mind you, she was eight months pregnant. Yeah. Mm. While she was still alive, somebody slit opened her stomach, and her unborn baby slid out and fell to the ground. And they stumped and crushed the baby to death. Wow. Then they riddled her body with hundreds of bullets. And that night, somebody got her and the baby and buried, and they buried them a few feet away from where they murdered her, where they lynched her. So the murderers on the plantation that the owner of Smith, whoever killed him, they caught him. And he was killed in a shootout with the police. And so uh, during that, uh, that week, more than 500 African-Americans fled Brooks County mm-hmm. and Lowndesdale counties in Georgia for fear of their lives. Because, you know, the European-Americans that went cra- had they gone crazy. So they, so the uh, local officials were given names of, of the instigators and, and 15 people that they knew had uh, instigated this, but nobody was charged or convicted. And so now a marker uh, memorializing her is placed near the lynching site and dedicated, and it was dedicated uh, May 15 in 2010. I read that and I can imagine back then, and I can imagine my dad, you know, he was older than she was. So if they treated her like that, if they did that to her, I can imagine what he went to uh, a black man, you know, on a plant, being born on a plantation. So it it just boggles my mind that nothing has really changed. Yeah. It's just new day way of lynching, whether it's, in education, or they sending everybody to prisons over marijuana that now they're making millions of dollars off of. So it's just a different way of lynching us. Yeah. Now they they uh, passed that stand your ground bill. You know, they passed that. It's frustrating. It's really really frustrating. And I always 
tell people it is exhausting, it is overwhelming being black in America. Yeah. And being black and poor in America, you do have poor European Americans, but to be black and poor, that's a double-edged sword. Well, I appreciate you uh, opening up this conversation in such a powerful way. And my original question was, I know, what's your childhood and what informs you and, and what you have shared is a, a unique insight into what does indeed inform your um, understanding of how things are and what's, what energizes what you're about today. And I really appreciate you honoring and sharing this this story of Mary Turner, uh, lifting her up um, and letting us hear about the tragedy and the atrocity and the injustice of her brutal murder by white men. So I just want to sit with that just for a second and just really honor and appreciate her life, her unborn child's life, her husband, and that she is she's one person, but yet she is such a representation of so much that um, has happened in this in the history of this country. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's funny because no, the conversations we have today is, you know, all the stuff that you were talking about. That's stuff in the past. That's like way in the past. That's mm-hmm. a, at the past. Mm-hmm. That's that we're far removed from. And the reality, it's like you said, you linked it together. You said that my my your own father yes was the was was there was that exact same age, and we're not even a generation removed from those those atrocities and and so that the legacy of that the trauma of all that is is still very much present with us and we unwilling to process and and face that trauma as a nation in particular because yeah. of the power of white supremacy yeah and that's what it is trauma yeah you know uh when you go to the doctor they ask you for your family history and you know when people say well you know that was way back then and I never would have owned slaves, and uh, you know, that was right. you know, so so far back. But then when you go to the doctor and they ask you your family history for medical purposes, that's trauma. Absolutely, yeah. that's trauma being passed down. If they go to war, you know, soldiers go to war, uh, they come back and there's trauma for the rest of their lives. Right. So our people have gone through so much trauma that's passed down from generation to generation. And it may not even be, just like reading that story, it triggered something in me. Even though I wasn't back there, but it triggered something in me because my dad was, and the trauma that he suffered, I know it's in my blood. So I cried when I first wrote it, and I I guess that's why I kept it, but, it's mind-blowing how one human being can hold so much hate or evil in their heart that they can think that they're better than uh, another person or they're much smarter. Because like I say, my, my parents didn't have, ed- they didn't have a sixth grade education, but they were very intelligent. My dad, my sister, was a graduate of Horace Mann and she was doing her homework one night and she stayed up late because there was one math problem that she just could not get. And she sat up and my mom finally told her just to go on the bed. And the next day she took her homework and they, the teacher called up there and asked her how did she get the answer to that, that problem. 
And uh, she looked at it and she knew that she didn't do it. My dad had got up and did it. <laughs> well, they want to know how did he, what formula did he use to get that answer? Because it wasn't the way they was, you know, it wasn't a formula that they used. And they were just, you know, amazed at how he got that answer by using a formula they couldn't quite understand. It. Wow. I don't, I was younger. I don't know what, what it came of, but I remember that was the big deal in the house. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to realize that there's so many ways to to measure intelligence and you know we as a society even at that time what you're describing even today we have created a very rigid system in which we're willing to accept what is intelligence and what is not yeah and uh, oftentimes what is, who does it harm it harms the poor it harms the disadvantaged yes and it benefits yes. the privileged and we yes. all know that not, when we talk about class, we cannot just talk about class without talking about race. They, they go hand That's in hand. Right. They're, yeah. They're, uh, so it also means that it's disadvantages people of color. Yes. And then I uh, work for literacy, and I did not realize the amount of young people who are illiterate today. I worked there for almost 20 years. And when I first started out, I was a volunteer. And uh, the secretary or coordinator, she was a coordinator, she got sick. So the director at that time asked me, well, could you come in, you know, and stay a little bit longer? And I did, so I wound up getting, getting a full-time position there. And it just blew my mind because I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go in here and there are going to be people, you know, older people who had to drop out of school to do share cropping or uh, yeah. keep the kids or what. When those young graduates started coming in from Central, I used to go home and cry because they couldn't read on the fifth grade level. And we had over 500 students. Well, I take that back. It wasn't 500 uh, students uh, in literacy. We had English as a second language as well. But it was close to 200 students who were illiterate. Wow. Mm. And uh, most of them graduated. And I asked them, I said, so how did you graduate? And they said they just kept, you know, passing me to the next grade. Most of them played sports. Yeah. But most of them, they say they just, you know, the teacher just passed them on. Most of the grades that they would give them, they didn't earn it because they couldn't read. And wow. that just blew my mind. And, you know, and I thought to myself, why would you ruin someone's life like that because that's all they were doing right was setting them up to fail and of course uh because we live in a racist country almost 20 years in arkansas is at will state a volunteer all our tutors were volunteers so here come this european american who was a retired pharmaceutical uh supervisor manager he came to volunteer to uh uh, with the program to help someone improve their reading or teach them how to read. So me being the only black person in the office, especially black female in the office, he and we had just got a, a new super, a new director, not super, a new director who really didn't know the job. I knew the director position well enough just to guide him through, but I didn't know anything about, you know, the state money or anything like that. So when this tutor, volunteer tutor came in and saw where 
I was kind of, you know, kind of leading, helping the director along. He, you know, he got thinking about it and he got me fired. Wow. Because he came to me and wanted me to, he started asking me to do things that it wasn't my job. And he was just a volunteer. So he went to the board and talked the board into giving him just a little position there, not paid, just a position in the office. And then next thing I know, because they came, well, they came to me and asked me would I work closely with him. And I told them, no, I'm not going to work closely with him. I'm not the director. I'm the coordinator. I deal with the tutors and the students. That's what I do. I'm, I don't, I'm not the director. So when he came and asked me would I file something for him and I told him, I will, no, I, I can't do that. I'm busy. He didn't like that, that this black woman said no to him right. and he got me fired. Wow. And so I did. I went to EEOC and they said because it was only two paid staff that I couldn't file a grievance against them or whatever against them because business has to have at least 25 employees oh my. even to get it started. So uh, I worked for them for almost 20 years. Uh, I go to unemployment and I'm thinking, well, I just go to unemployment and I sit down for a minute and regroup. I go to unemployment. They didn't pay in the unemployment. So I was just out on a limb with no unemployment, no job, all because of what he said. Comparing that to what you were talking about when it comes to the experience that a tragic experience of Mary Turner and how it was so in your face aggressively uh, antagonistic against uh, black bodies and black community and what you're describing about your experience with this white man some privilege coming from a pharmaceutical uh, company and now accustomed to having a, a seat at the table accustomed to having his voice heard and his opinions received and his ideas acknowledged come in there and in a short time uh, have influence on leading to your uh -huh. uh, dismissal uh -huh. the complexities of that we talk about systemic racism and, and white supremacy in today's context it's much more uh, nuanced and sophisticated but it's still the same evil it's still the same yeah That's what hurt me at the time. And I, I could tell, you know, he was, had a racist spirit, the way he, and I would not assign him an African-American, male or female. We did have some European-Americans who were illiterate, but not many. And so I would not assign him African-American, male or female, to tutor because I could smell racism all over him when I interviewed him to become a tutor. 
you know, I, I look at it and, and I kind of equate racism with, with the COVID-19 virus. There are three kinds. The first racist has all the symptoms. They are blatant racist and they are deadly. Like the, the police officer that put his knee on George Floyd's neck and lynched him in front of the whole world. And then you got the second racist who I say they mild racist. They got mild system like COVID, mild symptoms. They stay in their comfort zone and you know there's, you know, they know there's, there's a problem, but they say, well, I love all people and it's a shame, but there's, you know, nothing I can really do. I wasn't back there and they'll, you know, all lives matter and blue lives matter. I say they like COVID-19, they have the mild sym symptoms of a racist. Then you got the third racist who is asymptomatic. They don't show any signs. They're beautiful souls walking around with all the privileges in the world and don't even realize it. Mm. So they don't realize they have the racist virus. But no one see racism in a church or on a job. And Well, no, they'll see it, but they won't say anything. That's what I'm the, the ones yeah. that are asymptomatic. If yeah. you uh, see something on your job and you know it's wrong, if you work in HR and you know that they are promoting people over uh, another race of people and you don't say anything, you are asymptomatic racist. That's the way I, I put it. And then they, you know, they, they won't say anything. Knowing that they words hold weight, you know, they words carry weight and they can say something. You know, if you see that it's wrong and you don't say anything, you, you just as bad as the uh, first racist with all the symptoms. It, again, like I said, it is tiring being black yeah. in this country. It is exhausting. It is overwhelming. And you, you sometimes you get tired. You get tired of fighting. You know, you, you fight for the cause. And if it, you know, and sometimes if it doesn't affect you, or at least if it doesn't affect you, then something is wrong. The last one, then you, you have uh, some black people who... They would love to shut me up. Yeah. They, you know, tell me, you know, you just, well, you just leave it alone. You're being divisive. And we have a name for them, too. So, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I just, again, I don't understand how one group of people can think that all the people in the world, that they are the dominant superior race or people. And they say, well, you know, and I've had people tell me, well, Mir, when I see you, I, I, you know, I don't see race. Yes, you do. You're right. That's a racist right. statement. Because when I see you, I see your color. That's the first thing I see when I meet you. If yeah. somebody asks me, well, what did he look like? That's the first thing I'm going to say. He was a European-American. He had blue eyes, blonde hair, whatever. That's the way, that's what you see. So don't, don't say that. But even though we're all one race, human, the human race, we are different cultures. We, we are right. different, and that's what makes the world unique, is that we, we look different from one another, and we, our cultures are different, and we, we're just different. You know, if you hit your funny bone, I'll hit my funny bone. I can, we can both tell each other how it feel. <laughs> we can relate to the pain. If yeah. we, you know, if you stomp your toe, if I stomp my toe, we can both know what that pain feel like. But to be black, the pain and the stress is totally different. Right. 
we wake up and you know and go about our everyday lives and go about our business uh it doesn't mean that the stress of being black is not there okay. uh somebody some governor said somewhere that the slaves on the plantation seem to be happy well black people african-american get up every day and go and live in this world the best that we can but the stress is still not that we walk around stressed out but it's different there's actually i've heard many studies you know health studies that are showing the accumulation of the stress of systemic racism on the black body and the indigenous body and the latino body the brown bodies is measurable and it is um, a real actual medical phenomenon because like you said it's not that it, it completely debilitates you but it's a constant seepage into your you know, stress itself is a toxin in the body that kind of seeps all over the body and so you have this constant seepage of white white supremacy that is um ever present right and that's yeah that's a, like, that's measurable now you know and that's very true and I really, I really appreciate your description of racism and kind of breaking down the different levels of it. And that was a great analogy comparing it to COVID-19 because you're right. It's like, yeah. you know, we, even now, I mean, within white conversations about race, it, it usually comes down to very little conversation about systemic racism, very little understanding of structural, uh, the way in what society is structured to benefit um, you to a greater degree than if you're white than if you're not and we call that white supremacy and yet that is hardly ever discussed in white uh, conversations but what what is discussed often you know, at, uh, occasionally is the fact that you know you can't use the n-word and you can't you don't um, look at black people and say that they're you know, they're less than you are and all those those little individual mentalities and so it kind of hits that first when you're talking about where it's like the one who has all the symptoms who is you know that's, mm -hmm. that's all we think about is i'm not that i'm not a racist because i'm not that person <laughs> i'm not walking around calling black people um slaves i'm not still calling uh, the n-word i'm not you know giving them the side sneer and all that kind of stuff and i'm nice to people so i'm not i'm not a they're racist the they're the mouth yeah exactly they have the mild yeah. symptoms. They're the mild race. That's it, though, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, and, yeah. And, and, and so, in some ways, maybe you can agree or disagree with this. some ways, it may be easier to deal with a fully symptomatic racist because you know what you're dealing with. You have someone who's kind of that, yes. that asymptomatic. You're like, you know, what are you talking about? There's no problem here. I'm not spreading anything. I'm not spreading the virus yes. of racism. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard, yeah. harder to convince, aren't they? It, it, it is. And, you know, I, I'm... Uh, thankful that you know uh, everybody's having conversation you know racial conversation groups are, are popping up everywhere and it needs to be talked about but sometimes I can only speak for me sometimes I don't want to talk yeah. about it I don't want to explain to you I don't want to I'm tired of talking about it if my dad was born in 1894 and here I am today, and it's the same mess is still going on. It, it's, it's exhausting. Right. So nothing is being done. Nothing has changed. So to me, the ball is in your court. Right. When a black person is murdered, lynched, 
why should we go out and, and, and at the hands of a white, a European America, why should we have to go out? If you not a racist, and if you love all people and you know it's wrong, why don't, why isn't the, the protest all white on the front? Right. Against who, against the person, against their own who did it? That doesn't make sense to me. Right. Now, this George Floyd, yeah, everybody marched. They marched all over the world. You know, every color, every nation, every tongue. But the first person that should be out there marching is the European American. Yeah. Because they're the ones who did the lynching. All these, you know, Sandra Bland, we can name a uh, young girl, uh, Breonna Taylor. Right. Castro, I mean, at the hands, why, why didn't the people who know that it's wrong, the European Americans know that it's wrong, why didn't they go out and say, uh-uh, you wrong, and we're going to march against you? Right. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't understand that. And then they want to say, well, you know, and I've had some real close European American friends, very close, who say, well, you know, you know what they're going to say? What about, uh, why don't, where's Black Lives Matter when black on black crime? Well, <laughs> now you turning, you, you're trying to take it a whole nother direction. Now I'm looking at you funny because if you look at black on black crime, you should want to go to the root of anything. Yeah. And then they want to bring up, you know, well, crabs in, in the bucket. Well, crabs don't belong in a bucket. Yeah, yeah they're going to kill each other trying to get out of that bucket. And if you put crabs in a bucket and they know that that's not where they belong and something is right, they're going to fight and kill each other to survive. And then if you throw food down there to them, they're going to fight over that. If you throw weapons down there, they're going to fight over that. But you don't never let these crabs out of this bucket. Yeah. That's, that's your education system keeping black people in that barrel or bucket or whatever you want to call it. They put crack down in the community and destroy two generations. That's the crabs in the bucket. So when they bring up black on black crime, that just, you know, my head spins around like the exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's <laughs> not nah, just teasing, nah. but that, you know, when they bring that up, you know, then I'm thinking, why are you bringing that up? Right. Why don't you look into research it and see why, why is this a, a problem? Yeah. Education, the 1619 project, you know, they didn't want to teach that in school. And then people were talking about, well, you know, the uh, European Americans, they, they can handle it. They'll be the, the students, they can handle it. And I'm thinking, we don't know our own history. And that's another thing, you know, we won't have these conversations when African Americans, we barely know our own history. We need to study our own history and we will realize how, just how intelligent and awesome yeah. we are. Because somebody lied to us, somebody kidnapped us, brought us over here, stripped us of our identity, gave us their name, I, I overthink things, and which can be a blessing or a curse. Because I'm thinking, you know, and I um, attend a multi-ethnic church, and I'm think, and I look around, and I be like, everybody know who they are, but the African Americans in here. Because my married name is Givens, Pierre is my maiden name, but that's not really my name. So everybody know what their last name is, whether you Asian or Hispanic or Latino or whatever. You can, you, you know, once they tell you their name, you can pretty much tell 
where they're from, except for us. We don't know who we are, and, and, and until we study our own history, especially this generation, I was a substitute teacher, and I was over at Horace Mann, and a teacher had left a DVD on the Tuskegee Airmen, and kids came in, I think it was ninth graders, maybe eighth graders. They came in, and uh, I told them what the teacher had left for them to watch. They looking at it as that movie, and, so, and a lot of them hadn't even seen the movie with Terrence Howard in it. They thought it was Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> and they so they were giggling and talking, and it was maybe three European-American students in there. And then I, I was just watching them, and I thought, do y'all realize who the Tostia Airmen are and what you can glean from them? So I t cut the DVD off, and, and I talked to them, and they was like, wow. They didn't know. I said, they trained right down the street at Adams Field or, or Central mm -hmm. Flying Service. And they were like, wow, because nobody has fed into them the truth. Everything is, is movie made. And so they, when I put it back in, uh-huh, when I put it back in, you could hear a pin drop. They, they watched it, and they were blown away. I, matter of fact, it wasn't even over with by the time the bell rang, and they was like, oh, man. We want to watch the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's right. As far as there's there's some there's some intentionality behind the lack of education around the history of and the legacy of of blackness in this country and even even from Africa. Again, symptoms of white supremacy. And uh, I'm I recalling while you were talking, I was thinking about a another podcast I've enjoyed from. It's called Teaching Tolerance. It's from the Southern poverty law center and uh it's called teaching hard history and it it goes to the history of this country when it comes to uh, power white supremacy it talks about uh, slavery it talks about the enslaved it talks about and it, it's, it's all geared towards trying to create curriculum that can be brought into classrooms and they talk about how when teachers bring mm -hmm. this this real hard history into the classrooms they're amazed at how few african-american children of all ages have, have never even been touched by this stuff. And this is 2021. This is 2020, mm -hmm. 2021. Mm -hmm. This isn't mm -hmm. 1850 we're talking yeah. about here. This is today. And that's exactly. just, it's, it is mind boggling yes. that that's not mind boggling, but it's tragic. And again, it, it is a symptom of what we talk about when you say white supremacy, this is another symptom of what it is. If we can understand that and get it in our heads as white people, that there's, there's this is a big, Umbrella when we talk about white supremacy and what it brings, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can begin to dismantle yeah. it. And that's the whole, yeah, and that's the whole purpose. They don't want African Americans to know their history because they know that, that once we really find out just how, just how powerful and what we came from, then we, can, we would have power and we could start owning some some stuff. Yeah. They don't want they don't want us to know uh, our history. That's why it's right. hidden. They don't want us to know. And now they they do. They want us to know about you know the slaves that bowed down right. to the master <laughs> and you know they tap yeah. danced and all that kind of stuff. But they're not gonna tell you about the ones that right. didn't, like Nat Turner or Fannie Fannie Lou Ham, yes. Hamer. They don't you know they don't talk about those warriors. Or they'll talk about Harriet right. Tubman. You know, you talk about her and you talk about Rosa Parks and 
Martin Luther King and all them, but they don't go back all the right. way back. All slaves weren't all kidnapped. Africans didn't allow themselves to be enslaved, and they were so smart because they played down their uh, played down to their masters, and most of them knew how to read. They would speak the language that the master wanted them to speak, but they were very, very, very intelligent people. Absolutely. You know, like the braiding of the hair. A lot of you know, a lot of African American females and men walk around with their hair braided. They don't know the history behind the braiding of the hair. They braided uh, maps in their hair oh, to wow. escape. Uh, you know, songs that they 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 would sing. Uh, the master didn't know that the songs that they were singing while they were picking cotton were uh, messages that somebody was going to escape. Wow. So they <laughs> uh, they don't know that. And if we you know, again, that's hidden. They don't want us to know that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with us knowing that. It's not like, you know, we, we need to know it so we can just run out in the streets and just, you know, have this big war. We need to know who we know. We have a right. Right, yes. Like uh, Poor People Campaign, everybody has a right to live. Like my dad, he had a right to be born in this world and live a productive life just like anybody else, and he did he was born in this world, and from the day he was born to the day he died, he was tormented. Yeah, and that's not fair. I just want to t circle back a little bit and even talk about that a little bit. What was it? What was it like as a child, um, growing up with you know, in a, on a, a sharecropper family, uh, being black and, and sharecroppers? What was that experience like for you? Well, see, they weren't sharecroppers when uh, we were okay. born. Uh, like I say, we uh, were born and raised in the East End, delivered by a midwife. He worked at the Arkansas Foundry at AFCO Steel. Uh, he worked in, that's where he retired from. We didn't know we were poor. You know, as little children, we didn't know we were poor because we were loved. Yeah. Again, he, you know, to self-medicate himself, he, he drinks. And even with that, even with growing up in the East End, you know, the airport has really bought most of that community about uh, that community out most of those people they said they you know beat them out of their land the money that they gave them wasn't enough and they really shouldn't have moved because the airport said that they wanted to they needed all that land because they wanted 747 to be able to land <laughs> at the airport and you know and when I drive down there today I thought to myself that's probably what y'all sit around the board table and thought. Now y'all took all, all this land. I was born and raised down there. Y'all took all our land, and, and now you don't know what to do with it. It's a few uh, people that still live down there, but for the most part, all of the East End is gone, and it was community. Yeah. And my thinking, because I overthink, every time they see a community, they're going to destroy it. And the, I don't, you know, yeah, the East End was, uh, people down there were poor, but we wasn't, it wasn't like we were, I say piss poor. I just use that term. Yeah. <laughs> because community, everybody helped everybody. We had a pear tree, and when harvest time came, people came from, you know, all around in the community with their sacks to get pears, you know. Everybody helped everybody. It was a close-knit community. Uh, and I was talking about the, 
coronavirus, and I got down to when I said there are some black people who don't really want, I don't, well, that's, that even goes back to the plantation because you had kidnapped slaves on the plantation that would go and tell the uh, slave on, kidnapped slave owners if they knew about an escape. So there's always one they could get, and it was this one lady down there. Uh, we don't know what happened, but we think that she helped with the demise of that community. Mm. And so, uh, like I said, they, the airport bought it all out. You know, people scattered. And that's what they did with the crack. When right. they saw that the community was, you know, was strong, they dropped crack in the in the in the African American community. talking some of the things that uh, you're sharing uh, especially when you're uh, talking about uh, the ways in which people try to push back against this this powerful message that you're sharing we're saying that you know I don't see color you know there's it, we're all just people you know really what it is is this colorblindness is just another sophisticated way for white people to be in denial about racism and systemic racism itself and, but another Pushback, I mean, you might have heard of before, is like, well, even what your your dad experienced in 1894 to and where he's born till, but when we hit 19 the 1960s and we had the civil rights movement took place, you know that kind of addressed all the racial inequities. And we've been equal ever since, so there's no racism anymore that, that we're really dealing with, except for individuals having bad bad thoughts towards black people. What do you, what's kind of how do you respond to that kind of bad faith you know argument? <laughs> You know, each generation has this racism, or each generation has this movement, and it they may change the title of it. A surgeon is not gonna cut you open and then put band-aids on you and tell you to go on about your way for fear of infection. So the United States and probably other countries is infected with that evil hateful thing called racism. And I don't know if people, people say, well, you, they're not born like this. I, I don't know. You know, I don't know, uh, just like trauma uh, can be passed down in the blood yeah. from, you know, for, from generation to generation. Like I tell people all the time, Jim and Jane Crow had kids and their children had children. Right. So it's being passed down, you know, and we thought we was done with Jim Crow, didn't we? Right. And now look what happened in Georgia. And Arkansas better be careful. You know, sometimes we think we're done with all this stuff. Even if we're not done with it, the, they just changed, you know, the Band-Aid. It started getting infected, started looking real nasty. So they took that off and put a clean Band-Aid on it when that deep, deep, deep cancer is still there. That infection is still there. And, and um, it's sad. It is sad. 
and like you said, it's frustrating and it's makes you tired, right? It, it's, it's, like it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. And anybody who is in this moving, you know, the poor people campaign, you, you fight and you fight and you fight, you get tired. Yeah. And anybody, if, if you're out here fighting this and, and this, and you know, we're in this together, the poor people campaign, and you know, it get, you get tired sometimes. Because right. if you don't get tired, then you're not out there fighting yeah. for the people. It's all about you. Right. If you don't get tired. But when you're out here and you're fighting for the people, it, and, and it's like nothing is changing, you, you, you get weary, you get yeah. tired, and then you have to go back and you have to regroup. That's why it's good that we all come together, all colors come together and fight right. this because being poor in America, and you know you shouldn't be, it's, 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 it's really it's sad. Right, yes. It's, it's, it's sad, and I'm poor. So, and I know, I, and I look around and I be like, why, why are there uh, gaps in, in the way people live? You got the poor people over there here, and then you got the rich people out there. Well, why, how does that happen? Well, I know how it happened, but why is that? They, you mean tell me, can, don't nobody look at that and see that something is not right? We living in, in the wealthiest place on, on the planet, and you got homeless people, right. veterans, that, that don't, it doesn't add up. And I don't think they want it. They could, you know, they could talk all they want to at the conference table. I don't think they want to get any better because they benefit from it. They get money off of it. These big, rich people in Arkansas, and we know who they are, they don't want to get it any better. And when I was working in literacy, I started thinking, I don't think they want Because one time I said, I, I can't wait till the day we can shut this down right. and there won't be any more literacy. I take, you know, I go home and draw unemployment, which I couldn't. But I would prefer to not have a job and have everybody reading and loving to read than to sit and, and listen to those stories right. of those young kids yeah. graduating from Hall and Central and can't read on fifth grade level. Something's wrong with that picture. Yeah, and speaking about that, you know, um, again, oftentimes we think about like 200 students that you're dealing with who are um, illiterate after post-graduation from high school, you know, there is a tendency again, and this is again, a, a major problem in white culture, white supremacy is, is we make it so much about the individual on some things and other things we make it about an entire group. Like, mm -hmm. so like mm -hmm. you see an Ill, um, illiterate black, young black man, you know, the generalization is, you know, this is, he's an example of the whole group. Yeah, and, and illiterate young white man, it's like there's, there's an individual who's struggling. And, but mm -hmm. the reverses mm -hmm. apply when it comes to um, like uh, the school systems. It's like, well, if you didn't get, if you didn't read, get your, you know, if you didn't learn how to read, that's your fault. Or mm -hmm. look how terrible that school system is. Can't you can't yeah. teach that, that community? But the reality is, you know, there's a reason why the school system is is, is producing so many illiterate postgraduates. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's inequity, right? And that's another strategy. Yeah. You know, uh, even when I was uh, going to school, we would get uh, the books that came from the European American schools. They had been written in and nigger was written all in them and Sally, uh, so-and-so, she 
when she got the book, it was brand new. She got her name in it and Hunter name in it. And then they knew, you know, and they, the older school knew that the African-American schools would get their old book. So they were, oh my they, they were happy to write the word right. Uh, right. nigger in it. And uh, I remember one time we were in class and, you know, teacher said, okay, open up your book and start reading this person. You read the first paragraph and go on. So they got to this young uh, African-American boy and she said, uh, read. She said, we on page, I'll just say six or seven. She said, read. He didn't say anything. And she was like, did you hear what I said? Read. And he started crying and, and the class started laughing and she said, what is wrong with you? He said, my page is tore out. So some of our books didn't even have all the pages in it. So yeah. the whole class just laughed and teased him for a long time because he started crying and he said his page was, because his page was tore out. I laughed at him too, I'm not gonna lie, because you know, that's what kids do. But when you get older, I really felt bad because all we asked for was e equality, equal, being equal. And we shouldn't have to ask for that. Why would, uh, I, that boggles my mind. Why are we here today in 2021 still asking when a t-shirt that says equity or else. That's what you talked about. Like I thought, I thought, I thought the uh, civil rights movement and the, uh, all that fixed those problems. And yet here we are today. Yeah. So did uh, Nat Turner and those before him. Again, it's uh, a cancer. It's evil. It's sinful. The more we think it's getting better, it's really not. And we, at one point, African-Americans thought that they were trying to get rid of the black man because they were locking them up. You know, the target was a black man. I think that as, as, as African-Americans, we are the most forgiveness people on this planet. We are so forgiving. But on the other hand, that's not good. And I know if, uh, you know, whoever listened to this and they all in the religion, they are going to uh, probably, you know, I, I'm gonna get in trouble for that. Cause sometimes, <laughs> You should be wise, you know, right. uh, we don't pay attention. We, you know, something big happened, you know, everybody want to come together and this big kumbaya and we, you know, we'll forgive them and we'll go back at uh, prime example. Poor people campaign, when Dr. King started the poor people campaign and then when he was assassinated, we just all went back home, you know, and sat down because, you know, King was gone and the whole world was in mourning because he was this great man who was, had brought people together. And so we sat down, but that didn't, didn't end anything. Now, today, you and I, we are members of the Poor People Campaign. Right. We had to pick up where he left off. That's right. So I just think that we don't pay attention. We yeah. need to start paying attention to the tricks of the enemy. Yeah because we thought that they was trying to kill off the black man, get rid of the black man. But now, if we really, really pay attention, they want the black man in uh, Denzel Washington movie, that movie he was in, The Great Debate, when he told that young man, he said, you know, back then he said they would keep the body and kill the man. If they can, they want the body, they want the black man's body, right. but they want to 
pours in his mind, whether it's through education or in, in prison him. But now come find out what they, the target is, is the black woman. And I'm talking about the black woman that's my color. We need to pay attention. Yeah. If you, you have to look, you just have to sit back, sometimes sit back, shut up, and just watch. Because the enemy is, he's a trickster. And if he can have you looking over here, he's doing his dirt over here. And it's not the black man. They want the black man. They want his mind, but they want his body. Who they're really trying to destroy and wipe out is the black woman that's my color. All that hell they gave uh, Michelle Obama. And she is the most intelligent woman I know, you know, just brilliant. Stacey Abrams. You know, if they can get rid of the black woman that's my color, that's another trick they got. We need to pay attention. Right. I, I'm not going to say that we're too forgiving, but this forgiving, you know, you know, if you got Martin Luther King, then right. you got Malcolm X. And you need both. You got, you know, the Black Panther Party, which did uh, a lot for the black community. And again, they weren't violent people, you know, and that's the same, you know, history is repeating itself. Black Lives Matter and the Black Panther Party. Now they're trying to say that the Black Lives Matter movement is a terrorist group. And they said that the Black Panthers was this terrorist group when all they tried to do was take care of their own people. The, a lot of us don't know that they started WIC. Yeah, they had the, the breakfast program as well. Yes. Uh, all these community outreach programs yeah. trying to uplift from the bottom, and uh, they were considered a terrorist group. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all for the Poor People Campaign. I, I can't wait to you know, go to work to get, uh, especially on the voter registration, because this, this, this voter suppression, uh, suppression is, you know, that's another tool uh, that's, that's dangerous. It's to stand your ground, the voter suppression, and if we pay attention, we wait to after the fact that stuff happened, you know. Yeah. When we should be, now we know how they think. So we should be thinking, and that's what I love about, you know, Dr. Barber and the Poor People Campaign. Yeah. He's, he's on top of it. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he, you know, he can, he can bring the word, that's for sure. Yeah. I do appreciate you. You're, you spoke a little bit ago about, you know, the tiredness of, being a part of a, a movement that is working to end these uh, systems of injustice. And it's a, you, you said that if, if you're not tired, kind of probably a sign that you've been making this about yourself and not really about the collective. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. it kind of, it really, it kind of got me choked up a little bit thinking about that because I'm like, I, I, I feel that fatigue, you know, from yeah, especially here in Arkansas and, and all these profoundly harmful bills that keep getting pushed by uh, very harmful agenda and you just sit here going I wonder what we're going to do about all this if you keep on the mats and you stay on the mat you're going to feel that fatigue factor it's the mm-hmm. it's the, the temptation when I leave the mat to, to go and become complacent that um, kind of it calls to you to kind of say let's just, let's just forget about this it's just too too much but then as you're speaking I'm like ah. again we're in this together you know, yes. you and myself and all of us who are doing this are are in this fight together, on the mat together. You're not just on the mat by yourself. 
and we're together. Yeah. So we feel yeah. the fatigue together. We can we have yeah. the the victories together. We have the moments of confusion together. You know, yeah. and I think that's what's going to sustain us going forward. It sustains me knowing that we're together and all yeah, these things. And yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing that up. That really, really brought that to my mind and, and uh, was you know, uh, an uplift to my soul. And you know what, Nate? Uh, sometimes I, I speak out and I've been called divisive and uh, yeah. And I and then sometimes I think, well, maybe I shouldn't have spoke out. And and God will bring it right back around. He'll bring somebody right back around, or something will come on TV right back around to confirm. Uh, congressman that just passed. Uh, he he say, if you see something, say something. But then when you say something, unless you got a name, because again, people big on names. If you got the right name, you can say what you want to say. But if you just little old somebody like me, I'm labeled as divisive. And last year, matter of fact, the last four years of that presidency, uh, especially last year when, when COVID hit, I had Christians, European-American Christians. They dropped me like I had, you know, they threw shade and didn't want to have anything to do with me uh, because I was speaking out on the injustice of that president yeah. and uh they they you know these these are people of faith right and so i thought to myself i'm and i'm not gonna be quiet and i'm not you're not gonna silence me the church plays a huge role in it, or sh no they should they should play a huge role in in anything that's injustice Kind of, you mentioned it a couple times already, but you know, you hit on the fact that it's one thing to be a black man in this country, and that that is a hard, hard uh, road, path addressing white supremacy. And then, you know, that's uh, it's compounded when you are a a black woman in this country, because, like you said, you speak with any tone of authority or any tone of conviction. It is, it's oftentimes portrayed as being divisive or overbearing mm -hmm. or emotional because you got the double-headed racism and misogyny patriarchy kind of slapped together against you it makes that uh even more difficult and so uh, i definitely want to honor that and that profound amounts of respect and and uh honor and um solidarity with you for for, for you and so many others who <laughs> had to deal with that that, that, that combo punch there, you know, just to speak your truth. Yeah. You know, it's hard. Um, it's hard. It yeah. is hard. But, and, you, you know, and one thing you talked about was you, you, you kind of described uh, the um, black community, black culture is uh, profoundly forgiving. That is an asset and a, a hallmark of, of uh, beauty of, of, of black culture and, and the black consciousness. 
but I'd also wonder if you if you be willing to speak to. You now we've talked about some of the all this adversity and everything, but in the midst of all the adversity and the struggle that it takes to to exist in a black body and white supremacy in the United States, can you speak to if you're willing to the resiliency despite all that the 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 ability to thrive as black people of all this? Well, that's the beauty of the culture because whatever is given us, we're going to survive. You know, if you give us a little bit, we're going to take that and we're going to survive. And I think that's, that's what they know. They've seen it. And that's why, you know, the drugs come in and imprisonment come in because they know whatever you give us, we're going to take it and we're going to, we're going to uh, survive and we're going to thrive, and they don't want us to have power. But if, if you notice, whatever African American is handed, no matter what it is, they master it. Yeah. When they wouldn't let us play baseball, one person got in there and mastered it. Golf <laughs> mastered it. Right. Basketball, math, football, all, we, if you give it to us, we will master it because right. we are intelligent people. We had to be intelligent to be kidnapped, enslaved. Most of the inventions were invented by kidnapped slaves or African-Americans, but people don't know that because that was hidden or there was a lie taught in school. If we knew, but if we knew that, and that's what they, that's the trick that they've done to the mind. They want the body because they, they want us to work, but then they say we're lazy. But if they can distract us, which this generation, not all of them, when I say this generation, I don't mean all young African-Americans, because we got some uh, young African-Americans in this generation who are powerful. Yeah. But the other ones, uh, if they only knew, you know, they distracted by, if it's music, these cars, we don't own anything. We know nothing about financial literacy. Knowledge gives you power. And if, and if you don't know anything about financial literacy, even if somebody handed you a million dollars, you'd be broke two years from now right. <laughs> because you, you wouldn't know what to do with it. And I, I'm speaking for myself, too, because I wasn't taught anything about financial literacy when I was coming up, anything about money. And so you got a generation of, of young people who don't know who they are. And I, when I say don't know who they are, they don't know the greatness that they come from. Right. And how just how intelligent, rich our history is. If they knew financial literacy, then we could own some stuff. We wouldn't have to uh, run to out on Bowman to the super center. We own our own in our own community. You now all these board up houses. My cousin fought in World War One or two. I forgot. He was a carpenter. Couldn't read. He didn't. If he, you wanted a house bit built he he couldn't read a, a blueprint but he could build that house but again trauma and he was self-medicated alcoholic and the the story was and it was always a joke don't pay him before the job is finished because if you pay him before the job is finished you may not see him because he gonna go get drunk mm. but he could build you if you told him you want a three-bedroom house and you told him you know kind of laid it out how you want it. He built most of the houses in College Station. Well, back then. 
you talked about the self-medication uh, challenges that uh, have kind of bore themselves out in some uh, family history. One thing I was thinking about was the fact that you know, it's not like the medical ind- industry was favorable to African-Americans even during your dad's time or your cousin's time. <laughs> even today, there's still so much mm-hmm. um, harm that is even brought within the medical field towards African-Americans. Oh, you know? yeah. And again, like you said before, especially, you know, in particular, I'm thinking of um, black women, you know, often are considered, you know, we don't rec- you know, doctors don't recognize when they're actually in pain. Yeah. And being pregnant, being a black woman pregnant in this country is, is quite perilous if you don't have the right community around you because there's <laughs> no guarantee what the medical industry is going to do for you, you know. It's, it's, it's tiring. It's exhausting because, you know, uh, it's not right. And uh, I sometimes I don't, I have to back away from everything because, uh, uh, again, like, you know, we were discussing, you you out trying to fight against this evil. It's, 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 you get tired. It's yeah. exhausting because you're fighting against a giant, but giants can yeah. be slain. And we're not yeah. going to give up. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, you talk about the, the Poor People's Campaign itself. What The beauty of the potential of it is the great coalition that is the most terrifying to, to the elites and to the wealthy is the coalition yes. of of multiracial uh, people who are in poverty and working class coming together and getting over and learning to dismantle these sources of division you know, within our ranks so that if we come mm-hmm. together, there's like a movement that can't be stopped. And it does, you know, and it, and yes. uh-huh. And I know you're you're speaking to this in many ways, but still the the call is is to my community of white people, you know, and this is me too. That we had to have these conversations within our community. We had to be willing to. You talked about how you can smell racism easily, which means you have a a well developed, mature race consciousness that that comes from the experience of being on the opposite side of white supremacy. For most white families, there may never ever be a conversation about race that ever enters the home, because it doesn't have to, right? True. And you have to you have to be intentional That's about true. those mm-hmm. conversations, you know, in in your home. You have to say, you know, I'm making a, I'm going to make a, a a concerted effort in this family. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about what it means to be white in white supremacy. We're going to talk about what it means to be um, complicit. And, and benefactors, and like you said, if you see it, call it out, which means if you see the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. power of white supremacy being yielded in your workplaces, in your neighborhood, in your pol- the policy making of your city, and in your state, your county, in your school board, you know, in your school district, it needs to be something that you're willing to stand up and, and talk about it within your family, and also be able to be out there uh, in the mm-hmm. streets. And I think, you know, if we can, if we can continue, if, if we can make movement in that in that white communities, it can really make a go a long ways to help us bring that coalition together in a much more uh, productive way. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, all the burden keeps falling upon people of color and profoundly upon African Americans in this country to carry the water for us white folks. And I, I obviously speak to myself as well. Um, so I really appreciate this wonderful conversation we've had. Um, it's been well. I could go on and on and on, Nate. Uh, I appreciate you for ha- I appreciate you for having me. That's uh, been great, and 
if if it brought a lot of uh, again, I would never consider um, you to be uh, divisive. I think you're a powerful voice and uh, a passionate voice and a, a necessary one. I'm I'm honored to be able to to be a uh, partner with you in this campaign and moving forward together. And yeah. again, thank you for being on this podcast with me. I appreciate you for asking me. We are new. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation today. The Arkansas Poor People's Campaign is focused on lifting the voices of those that are impacted by the evils of injustice. This podcast is aligned with that mission, so we invite you to come join the conversation. If you are interested in sharing your story, reach out to us at arkansas at poorpeoplescampaign.org. That's arkansas at poorpeoplescampaign.org. And let us know that you want to be a guest on the podcast to speak your truth. All who are members or partners with this campaign are welcome. Forward Together is a production of the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign. The host of today's episode was Nate Davis. Producers of the episode include Nate Davis and David Coffey. Script writing by Anissa Rayford Ford. Intro and outro songs created by the Poor People's Campaign. A national call for moral revival. Instrumentals by David Coffey. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign on Facebook and Instagram at Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. On Twitter, at Arkansas PPC. Or by going to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org backslash Arkansas. Thank you for listening, and feel free to share this podcast with others.